I think what's more important than figuring out exactly what is that perfect metric for a company, it's more about how do we experiment and constantly iterate and use data to over time figure out more of those, those metrics. Especially early stage, a lot of PLG companies get it wrong where they'll say we need to spend three months on a data science project and funnel all our resources into figuring out what is that perfect thing. When in reality, you're not going to know for a while. You need to continue to test and experiment. Happy Friday and welcome to Not Boring Founders, where each week we have conversations with the founders that are shaping the future. This week, we welcome back Alexa Grable, co-founder and CEO of Pocus. Alexa is a rare two-time guest on Not Boring Founders, and she joins us to share some big news and update us on what Pocus has been up to in the last eight months. But before we get to that conversation, you know it's time for a word from our sponsor of all of season two of Not Boring Founders. That's right, it's FTX. FTX has been in the news a lot recently, both for saving crypto and its recent acquisition of Not Boring Capital portfolio company, Embed. The FTX app is the best way to buy and sell crypto, NFTs, and stocks. FTX started as a platform for crypto professionals, and with the FTX app, they take all of that power and make it easy to use for folks like you and I. They do all of it with low fees, no withdrawal fees, and best-in-class security. Sign up for the FTX app using the link in the show notes, or just download the app and use code NOTBORING, all one word. And when you do, you'll get free crypto when you make your first trade. Thanks to FTX for sponsoring all of season two of Not Boring Founders and making conversations like today's with Pocus CEO, Alexa Grable, possible. Alexa, welcome back to Not Boring Founders. Thank you, Packy. I am pumped to be back. So you're one of the one of the first two-time guests on the podcast. You were one of the earliest guests on the podcast. And you're back because you have some big news. But first, I don't think I, I got to ask you the, the new question, which I asked everybody now, which is like what the world looks like in 10 years if Pocus is as successful as, as you dream it might be. Yeah, well, thank you for having me back. And it's crazy. I know we last chatted in about November, which is not too long ago, but it feels like ages in startup world. Just so much has happened since then. So maybe I can give some context of what Pocus is, and then I can talk about where we're going in our 10-year vision and how we've crystallized that over the past six months. Does Let's that work? do it. Perfect. So hi, I'm Alexa. I am the founder of Pocus, and Pocus is a product-led sales platform. So we help modern go-to-market teams turn all of their product data into revenue. So to simplify this, what we're really doing is helping sales teams get access to all the data that lives in disparate places, like the data warehouse and the CRM, so that they can really figure out who are the best opportunities and how to take the right action on those opportunities. Through this customer discovery and early building, what we've recognized is that there's this huge movement with the modern data stack and data warehouses and all these great tools for data teams and technical teams and engineers to tap into product usage data and use it to inform their own strategies and projects and initiatives. But what we've seen on the go-to-market side is it's really hard for sales teams to get access to all of that rich product usage data that typically lives in a data warehouse. So this is where I'm going to the longer term vision of right now, we're unlocking the data warehouse 
for modern go-to-market teams. We let go-to-market teams and sales reps for the first time ever be able to access and action data around who's signing up for their product, who's using it, how are they using it, which was typically locked away in the data warehouse, like Snowflake, BigQuery, Redshift. So longer term for us is that we go beyond sales teams. It's every single non-technical team. So sales, marketing, customer success, growth, ops, at every single type of company can realize the power of data. And so we are unlocking that future through having this flexible and no-code interface to allow every single person in every single type of company get access to the data warehouse. What are people doing today? If I'm not technical, when I was not technical at a startup, I would just use Looker and build dashboards. Yeah. Like what's the, what's the difference? Like what are, what are other people doing and, and how does focus help? Yeah. So this takes me back to my days when I was sales strategy and ops, and I was that person building everything internally. So typically what folks will do on the sales op side or even some marketing ops or data folks will help out the sales teams and build them looker dashboards and maybe run some apps through Zapier and hook something up with Slack to Salesforce. And it's an internal build that requires a lot of different solutions, but it's still in the ops team's hands. So every time a salesperson might say, you know, I have an upcoming call with Apple. I want to understand how Apple is engaging with my product, whether it's they're on a free trial or they're a paying customer and they're ready to go to the next tier. I need to ping the ops team or the data person to say, hey, can you help me pull this data? How has it changed over the last few weeks? No, I want this data point, not that one. And it's not configurable. A salesperson often doesn't know SQL or know how to code to pull this data themselves. So they're relying on others to do it for them. And it's not efficient. They could be on a data team backlog for weeks or they might get something pulled for them in a Looker dashboard that's not intuitive. Like, I don't love Looker dashboards. Product teams love Looker dashboards. They're great for data exploration for people who are technical. So what is the difference when you're thinking about kind of presenting similar data in a way that resonates with one team instead of another? How do you think through that, what are the product decisions that you're making and what are the key differences between a sales team and a data team and the way they look at data? Two core differences. So first is the ability to go from insights to action. So with a Looker dashboard, it's really good for data discovery and visualization and diving deeper to really test hypotheses to drive product growth, ops engineering decisions. But there's nothing to then take an action on. So if you want to take an action, you'd have to go to another tool. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you are through the Pocus dashboard or through the Looker dashboard, you're able to surface a new product qualified lead, a new lead that maybe they invited five other users, they've been on your product for 30 days and they've reached an aha moment. Great. So maybe we can service that in a Looker dashboard and service that in a Pocus dashboard. But how do you then take an action and how do you know what that action is? Should you email them? Should you remain in self-serve? Should you snooze it for 30 days? Should you create an opportunity in Salesforce? Should you create, generate a slide deck for a QBR? That action piece is missing. So Pocus enables you to go from insight to action, which is really important for a sales rep that isn't just sitting around visualizing data all day. They are taking action and they're moving. The second piece is it's purpose-built for a non-technical user. So everything is no-code, drag-and-drop, flexible. So if you wanted to pull a data point from the data warehouse that we're sitting on top of, you drag-and-drop a number and say, I want to see total number of users, you drag that in. Versus in Looker, you would need to know how to code or write SQL to actually bring that data in. And I'll say along with being purpose-built for a sales professional or 
customer success, marketing, non-technical, it really maps to their workflow. So we're building something that is purpose-built for how a sales rep thinks, how they act, what their daily motion looks like, which includes things like Slack alerts, includes things like scoring models, which go beyond Looker. You mentioned something in there that I'm wondering how you capture in, in the dashboard or like how you even capture it in the computer, which is the aha moment. What is mm-hmm. the aha moment and how do you capture that? Love that question. So there is this theory that everyone should know their aha moment and then you run your whole business around it and poof magic. I think that started with Slack when they said, you know, 2000 messages. That is our aha moment. That is our PQL. Nothing else matters. Well, um, Facebook you know, was what, like seven friends or friendly. something like exactly. that. Let me tell you, that is great. That is a great V1 for what an aha moment is. You cannot run your business around that. It is experimental. So there's going to be an aha moment from going from self-serve free users to when they're going to pay. There's going to be another aha moment from going to the team plan to the enterprise plan. There's going to be another aha moment when there's a cross-sell opportunity or an upsell opportunity or expansion. There's even aha moments for when you might churn. So there's different, whatever you want to call it, aha moments, product qualified, the triggers, signals. You need to constantly experiment with them. So the seven friends on Facebook, the 2000 messages sent on Slack, that is great. That is a great metric for maybe going from free to paid or whatever that initial conversion is, but it's all experimental. And so what I mean by that is there's ways in focus to actually experiment with what is a good aha moment and what is a good qualified lead. And so you're able to see, okay, if someone sends 2000 messages on Slack, what does that mean? What does the output look like? Where is the distribution of accounts that fit that criteria and habits? And if we send all of those leads to sales, how does that work? How do we A-B test that from sending it to sales versus remaining in self-serve? So I think what's more important than figuring out exactly what is that perfect metric for a company, it's more about how do we experiment and constantly iterate and use data to over time figure out more of those, those metrics. And I think this is where especially early stage, a lot of PLG companies get it wrong, where they'll say, you know, we need to like, spend three months on a data science project and funnel all our resources into figuring out what is that perfect thing. When in reality, you're not going to know for a while. You need to continue to test and experiment. We talked about this a bunch last time for the very, very few people in the whole entire world who didn't listen to our last podcast conversation. (laughs) Can we talk a little bit more about the difference between product-led growth and product-led sales and kind of the history of how the industry has evolved? For sure. So product-led growth is what you think about Slack, you think Dropbox, you think Atlassian. The product itself is driving new users onto your product, the conversion from free to paid, even expansion. That's step one of all these companies that you can think have a viral product that can sell itself to some point. That only goes so far. You can only have users signing up for the product and not having a sales team for so long until you realize, you know, we need to accelerate the time to value for these customers. And we need to make sure they're really getting the richness of our product. And we need to guide them through that path. And that's where product-led sales comes in. So product-led sales is the go-to-market motion that leverages those existing users on their product for conversion, for upsell, for expansion. And so what product-led sales really enables is saying, okay, we have all these self-serve users on the product. How do we now get them to the next stage? of conversion? And then how do we get them to the next stage of realizing even more value out of the product? So compared to a traditional sales motion of where, you know, you're 
outbound and cold on LinkedIn, or you're taking folks out to a steak dinner and wine and selling them on the value. It's way more about get products in the hands of users, have them love it. Really, they're living in it. They couldn't do their job without it. And then a sales team comes in and says, how can I help you add more value? And let's invite your other teammates and let's talk about an enterprise rollout. In your opinion, who's like the Slack, Dropbox, Zoom, whatever of product-led sales? Who's doing it best? Yeah, we actually have a community of product-led sales folks that we can talk more about where now there's about 1,200 people from every major PLG company, Airtable, Notion, ClickUp, all of them. I'd say that there's no one answer for product-led sales of what a great product-led sales company. Like I can tell you, I think that it's interesting what Airtable, Notion, ClickUp, DVT, Retool, all of these companies are doing. It's all a little different. So there's not like where with the the days of Salesforce and Oracle, there's a playbook that you run. There's you top-down sales is just go. Like this is the playbook you run and this is what the pilot should look like. With product-led sales, every model looks a little different. You can see some themes if you're looking at consistent dev tools or consistent productivity tools or consistent B2C tools, what their product-led sales motion looks like, but it, it's a little different. It's, you have to be a little more creative and flexible and experimental with the traditional sales motion. So I know I didn't answer you. I'd say that well, then there's I won't, many in the community. <laughs> I won't let you get off that easily then without picking a side. So then I'll, I'll ask you, the most creative experiment that you've seen run. Yeah. And this might be just biased because they're one of our customers. So we're working with Clockwise and they have been really creative with spinning up new scoring models for how to define a PQL and then experimenting it with their team. So let's see, wow, we have a hypothesis to test around SMBs in this industry. Let's make sure that we're rounding all of those leads to SDRs and then have those SDRs or sales assist team go and talk to those customers, not in a way that's like, use clockwise, use clockwise, use clockwise. It's more, how can I help? And then guide that conversation to building a relationship and then moving towards more of an enterprise sale. And so it more in the weeds with them. So it, that I would say is a great example. Okay. So you, you win so we can move on now to the current market environment that, that we're in. You have this really, really interesting bird's eye view and I don't know, you know how much data you're able to see, but if sales are slowing down at a bunch of companies or are companies yeah. adjusting and are they adjusting prices? Like, are you seeing any of that kind of stuff trickle through or any early warning signals trickle through that like the doom and gloom that people are talking about is actually, actually hitting? Yeah, I've seen both sides. Where I would go is people will say, okay. How do we optimize costs and make sure we're still driving revenue and finding opportunities and take, it feels like everyone's relooking their go-to-market motion, their tech stack, the tooling, the cost, everything. And so there's kind of two different theses on as a company, we should now run enterprise or as a company, we should run PLG. And so the reason to say, okay, let's go enterprise is we just need five deals and we can be good for this year. But the reason to go product-led, it's way less expensive to keep that flywheel going. And especially over the next two years, if you can just grow that flywheel of self-serve user base, even if they're not spending a lot now, and then over time convert, it almost feels like that is the right move because PLG is a long, right now we are, everyone kind of needs to play the long game in a way of the market might not get back up for a couple more years. 
And so we need to make sure that we're thinking long-term and saying, okay, if I can spend the next two years perfecting this PLG motion and figuring out how to get more users on our product, and then in two years, monetize those users once folks are more willing to spend, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that is where most companies will go. I can't say I've seen any drastic decision so far. It still feels very early days. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it also depends to maybe if you haven't raised recently and you're running out of money, you're like, all right, just give me like three enterprise sales and I'm good. I just need that cash in the door. And if you've just raised a very big round, then you can think longer term. That was a segue into my next question, which is congratulations. You just raised a big round. Tell me about it. Yeah. So feel very fortunate that we were able to raise at this time and all due to our the team and the community and our customers. So we raised our Series A, um, about 24 million, actually less than a year, nine months from our Series Seed. And so we're really raised this round to go after our broader vision of unlocking the data warehouse. $24 million. Wow. How does that translate into runway? And then how, did, how has that changed kind of from like when you went out and raised around, you're yeah. probably like, I'm going to raise $24 million. It took me nine months last time. I'm going to spend this in nine months. We're going to win all the customers and then keep going. Like, how has your thinking changed? Totally. So how I thought about this is we raised our seed in June and we barely spent our seed money. We are very cost effective. We have a very efficient team. But starting earlier 2022, I saw the inklings of where the market was going. I wanted to make sure that we had runway beyond what we could have waited longer to raise the seed. So I took a step back and I said, okay, are we at a place where we could raise another round right now and prove the business metrics to get the amount of money and the valuation that we want and deserve? And I said, you know, like we built the product, we led sales category, we built a really valuable product. We had hundreds of customers on our waitlist. We're adding real value to beta customers. We have a 1200 person community. And so I said to myself, this is going to be the time. Like it's now or never, it's now or in two years. And so I tested the waters with some VCs and we were lucky to have enough interest to be able to go out and raise now. We went out raising 10 million and we got a lot of term sheets for double and without cut to the dilution. So still great valuations. At the seed, we raised close to four. I got offers for double and I took a step back at that time and said, we don't need double. Like, I don't want to be thinking about how to spend this money. I want to be cost efficient. So I actually took offers to lower price, but it, also going back to who you want to work with. But this time, the VC that we wanted to work with offered double. And my logic was very different than the seed. It was, you know what, like we, we want to optimize also for the amount raised given just where the market is. That makes a lot of sense. So how do you think about spending it now? When you've gone from this, this world where you have $4 million to this world where you have 24 plus whatever's left mm -hmm. over from, from that four, same trajectory given the market or step on the gas? So definitely being a little more cautious. And you know what? I think my co-founder and I have never been the ones to say, let's just hire a bunch of people and throw them at a problem. <laughs> like we really want to be strategic, thoughtful, and intentional about who we bring on and hire. So we don't hire folks until we are feeling the pain point ourselves and doing the job and then can pass over those repeatable processes. So yes, we've hired some really key folks that are onboarding soon that we're really excited about. But I believe in the stage that we're at now, 
hiring 20 more people isn't the right move. It's let's be really efficient. Let's all be very strategic. Let's figure out what we can do as a small cohort. I'll also say that you move faster sometimes with fewer people. So there's less decision makers in the room. And we have a pretty good process going there where we, I, I think I said this last time, one of our values and how we think is ship and iterate. So just get shit out the door, learn and iterate. That gets harder as you grow. And so the more that we can stay in this entrepreneurial fast paced mindset, which I mean, one of the keys to winning is speed, right? And especially for us. And so that's what I'm optimizing for. Not necessarily saying like, oh, we're not going to hire, we're going to cut hiring by 50%. I'm going to continue to say, I'm going to hire when I need this hire and maybe have a little bit more of a lens of, do we really need this? Like, where's the market going? And where are you hiring? Is it engineering mostly? Is it go-to-market? Where are the big areas you're hiring right now? Yeah, it was so exciting that we are now able to build out our go-to-market team. So until the Series A, the entire go-to-market team was myself and our head of marketing, which usually people are surprised by because we give kind of a broader presence on LinkedIn and our community. So now we put all of our resources and capital towards engineering. So that was the logic. Now we are starting to build out our go-to-market teams. We've been hired an incredible head of customer success and biz ops. We're still hiring for solutions engineering and the bulk though will still be towards engineering. There will always be more folks hiring on the engineering side, which kind of gets to our product-led mentality. And then but having some key hires on the go-to-market side to make sure that we're able to give our community and customers the best experience. So I'll say you'll never see me hiring a team of 15 SDRs. That's just not in our future. Like we're never going to be a team that just goes out and cold calling and outbounding aggressively. We're going to hire go-to-market teams that want to learn with our customers, grow with them, help them enable onto the product. Look at that, eating your dog food, even in terms <laughs> of the sequencing of engineers first and then and then hiring the salespeople. Exactly. It seems like everything's kind of unlocked right now. You have enough money to experiment and grow. And like it sounds like you have a pretty clear roadmap in terms of what you want to build and how you want to expand the aperture of who this makes sense for. Like, what are you scared about right now? Or what are the things that, that keep you up at night? Yeah, it's that's really interesting is we've built a very powerful and flexible product. And so the core of what we've built is really this no-code data management platform, where you can join data from various different places, make it usable and digestible to go-to-market teams. And then when you think about what to build on top of that, it's endless. Like there are so many things to build. For sales reps, we're scratching the surface with sales reps right now of converting PQLs. You can have account managers driving cross-sell, customer success, reducing churn, growth folks doing scoring and A-B testing and marketers with data-driven campaigns. There's our roadmap, we could hail a roadmap for the next 10 years, and I bet you have enough work for the next 10 years. So the thing that not keeps me up, but I want to make sure we're getting right is prioritization of the product roadmap. And so what I mean by that is really make sure that nothing being built is from our gut. It's all from a customer demand and really figuring out who is the right persona to be building for next and where should we be spending our precious resources to go in. And so that's one thing. And then really the, the thing that keeps me up more is just hiring the right people. I've been very lucky and happy and thrilled with the team so far. Like I've never seen a more high performing, fast, incredible team. And this needs to scale. Like whatever we're doing now, like we need to continue to do this. And that's the most 
important part. This is the challenge always is as it gets bigger and like A's hire A's. And if you have a bunch of A's now, then you can keep hiring A's and that's super helpful. But like, how do you think about going from this like small, fast team to carefully building something that's much bigger and just as fast and just as high performing and, and all of those things? So I move at an insane pace for everything but hiring. I am insanely slow for hiring. It took me four months to find the head of customer success. I probably did 75 interviews of different people. So my logic for hiring is not letting the need for hiring. And so we know that we need to hire so many. There are so many open roles we need to move, but not letting that ever let us settle. I never want to hire because I'm so desperate for a role. I want to hire because it's the exact person for the job, the culture fit, the vision alignment, everything. And so making sure to just keep myself in check and keep ourselves honest that we can't just hire for speed. We have to continue to hire for being the right team that we've already built. I think a common misconception is how much time founders spend on hiring. I spend so much of my week sourcing, interviewing, reference calls. My job as a CEO is to build the right team. I'm literally stalking people on LinkedIn. Like, I feel like people think that's like what a recruiter does. That is my job right now. Do you have a recruiter internally or have you started building out that, that function or is this all you just sitting on LinkedIn and stalking people all day? For now, it's me and my co-founders network. We have first round, our seed investors have helped a bit on sourcing candidates, but there's no full-time recruiter. It's, it's us and finding the right people on LinkedIn. And it's also a sales role. It's selling people on the vision and why they should join this journey right now. And it's going to be a huge unlock for their future. What is your hiring process from beginning to end? Like if you're doing 75 mm -hmm. interviews for the same role, are you asking the same questions every single mm -hmm. time? How are you comparing everything? Where do you put your notes? Like the really nitty gritty about how Alexa thinks about hiring. Yeah. So we do everything that you would think of the initial screen. Multiple people are interviewing this person. We have checks for their technical skill set as well as cultural fit and alignment. I think the two most important things for any interview is some sort of take home challenge and references. So you can do as many interviews as you want, which is more to me cultural fit? Does this person jive with the team? Would they be excited to work with them? But if you can give a take-home challenge or working session, whatever you want to call it with a candidate that's very real to what they would be doing, that I find the most informative. So for example, for the biz ops hire, I listed out, here are my biggest priorities right now that I'd want your help with. Can you send me a notion doc of what you think about all of these topics. And if you were made the decisions you would make, and then we got in an hour and a half call and just jammed on it and talked about it. And I said, okay, how does this person think? Do we work well together? What are my red flags? Is there a healthy debate or is it kind of, are they just saying yes to everything I say and looking for those things? I did the same thing with the head of customer success. I had them put together a POC, like we have an upcoming POC starting with this really big customer. How should we think about it? What's the deck that we should give to them? What does the first customer meeting look like? What does the rest of the POC look like? And they put that all together and we had a really robust conversation. So that having a take home that's very reflective what the job will actually be. And then references are everything. How do you do it well? When I'm being a reference for somebody, it depends how I guess how well I know the person who's asking, but if someone's asking me to be the reference, I probably really like them. I'm probably going to say good things and I'll probably do that they work too hard as a bad thing yeah. or whatever. How do you get past that? So 
not just doing the references that they give you? So typically what I do in most cases, I have a mutual connection on LinkedIn with the person I'm interviewing. That happens a lot, not always. And so I can do some back channeling there. And then also if you are talking to a reference that they give you, just going really deep and trying not to get service level discussion answers. So I think one question that there's different ways to frame it. I've heard different people and different founders frame it a different way, but being able to compare the person that you're interviewing with others. So whether that's you say, is Patty the top 1%, 5% or 10% of engineers at this company? They say top not, 5%. Not even close. Not even close. <laughs> Patty, we're bottom, pretend bottom you're a, 5% engineer. <laughs> we're going to pretend that you are a top, you didn't get 1%, but you got 5%. You're, that's pretty solid, Patty. I'm good. proud of you. But let's say that you are top 5%. I'll say, okay, so who's the person that's top 1%? They'll say, Isaac. Isaac's probably my co-founder, top 1%. <laughs> and He's then than you say, okay, why is Isaac better than Packy? What does Isaac do that Packy doesn't? And so you start to compare the person because then that per the person who's giving the reference can give you like really specific answers. It's less kind of like fluffy. Another way to do it is just start out by saying like, okay, who's the strongest engineer on your team? How does this person compare with them? That probably will get a lot of heat for what I do. I don't know if this is like best in class, but it works for me. No, it seems, it seems really good. So in that example, Isaac, for example, knows how to code and I don't. So like, even on that, yeah, that's a very specific point that you're going to uncover in that process that I don't know how to code. And so we yeah, just avoided you hiring like, me. Exactly. Or something like, oh, you know, Isaac just moves a lot quicker and can get things done in 5x the speed or Isaac collaborates better with others on your team. And then you say, what does that mean? Why, why don't they collaborate well? And it's easier to kind of open that can of worms that wouldn't be opened otherwise. Yeah. And then you're just the referrer. You're sitting there and like panicking that you've ruined this yeah, person. Sweating, career. freaking <laughs> out. But yeah. the reality is, is what I like to think about it is, is we're also doing the candidate a favor. Like they need to be joining a company that's a good fit for them. So if this role, they don't work fast, they shouldn't be working in a startup. They should be, you know, like maybe they're better off at a bigger tech company. And so we're figuring that out during the call. No, it makes a ton of sense. And obviously the results are showing. So what's like the next three to six months money in the bank going into this just like war mode in this environment? Like, what do you have? What are you building? What are you most excited about over the next few months? Great question. So I think about this uh, team customers community. So the team, I talked a little bit about the roles that we're hiring. We need to get cuts and seat that are stellar and we're scaling both our culture and capabilities and everything. In terms of customers, I'm also looking at product. So how do we build the right product features for them that are is going to make them excel and going beyond just a sales use case? So we've had a lot of customers that are account managers and customer success folks. So really diving into those use cases even harder to figure out how can we, instead of them hacking together solutions, really build purpose built solutions for them. There's a lot of other interesting things on our product roadmap regarding intelligence. So having more machine learning predictive models for scoring and next best actions, as well as reporting for leadership. Like I said, there's tons on the roadmap. So it's really about customers. And then third is community. We are leaning on these evangelists that have joined our community to drive the future of product-led sales and drive the future of the modern go-to-market team. So as you know, the community started in July and went from 20 people to 12. And so we need to continue to nurture that and make sure that the quality remains. How do you grow a community from 20 to 1200? And then like now, how do you think about like what's too big? What's the right intimate size? Yeah. Where do you go from here on that? It's funny with the community. I was always 
quality over quantity always. I think we talked about this last yeah. time or we've talked about it separately. I never said, you know, by the end of this year, we need to get X people in the community. It was more, I want to these first 20 users, make them so successful in their job. I went and I want them to build the category of product-led sales with them. And then they ended up inviting their friends, their bosses, their peers, et cetera. So it started organically growing. And you still need to apply to get in the community. My head of marketing actually checks daily everyone that applies and lets them in if they're really a go-to-market leader at a product-led growth company. And the reality is there's a, we need to do more work to make sure that the quality remains as powerful and robust as it was when there was a smaller group. And so that's little things like we created a community code of contact. Like if someone posts in the wrong channel and they're promoting themselves, we tell them to delete it and move to another channel or they're out. As well as just more smaller group workshops and one-on-one meetings and creating an ambassador program. So really learning from companies like DBT and Notion, who I think have excellent communities, seeing what they did, putting a spin to it. So now we're going from, okay, we built this thing. We had this group of evangelists. It's working. It's active. Members are getting true value from this community. Now, how do we scale that without getting, you know, noisy or spammy? Like we, it goes back to the whole product and sales thing. Like add value. Don't be spammy. Amen. I mean, that could be like the almost anything motto at this point. Add value. Don't be spammy. Where can people find you and Pocus and, and get involved and learn more about product and sales? Yeah, pocus.com. You can sign up for our wait list. You can sign up for the community. You can sign up for our newsletter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me, any of those places, and I would love to chat. Amen. Alexa, congratulations. Thank you for coming back. Even better the second time somehow. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Zach. 